Amen. Regardless of how you feel emotionally, mentally, or physically, spiritually, it's a good morning. Very good morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study, our survey, if you will, of the book of Acts. Um, last time we were together, we, we worked our way down to verse 10. You find your place in Acts chapter 16. And we have just started to look together um, at, at Paul's second missionary journey. Um, we looked at uh, Timothy joining uh, Paul and Silas. And we'll pick up where we left off after a word of prayer and uh, make it through uh, the chapter this morning. That's the goal. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the glorious privilege of gathering together as the beloved children of you, the Most High God, through the finished work and worth of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that uh, you would clear our minds of any distractions and help me to Walk us through this text for our edification, and above all, for your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this second missionary journey, as you recall, begins with a, with a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. It's uh, not a tender debate at all, uh, but a very strong disagreement. Paul was against Barnabas' idea of taking John Mark um, with them. If you remember chapter 13 and verse 13, um, he departed from them on the first, uh, midway through the first journey, went back to Jerusalem. Um, here at this point, Barnabas wants to, to take him with. Um, Paul says, absolutely not. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had already done much traveling together. So emotions get heated. Paul stands his ground. Paul says no. Paul's emphatic. He keeps insisting uh, on his point of view with regard to John Mark. Uh, he's a quitter. He's failed us once. I'm sure that's the concern. He'll fail us again. Um, Barnabas, I'm sure, is trying to reason that, hey, he's young. He was worried, he was tired, whatever the case, um, there's, there's strong contention here. Paul said no, Barnabas said yes, so this one missionary team now has become two. Paul picked up Silas, um, who, who brought to the ministry some benefits that Barnabas uh, didn't have. Silas, like Paul, was a Roman citizen, we'll see the importance of that later on. We read earlier that uh, he was a prophet, he obviously spoke Greek, and he would become Paul's stenographer, penning um, First and Second Thessalonians. We see his name there, Silvanus, which is the Greek form of Silas. And even though Barnabas was at this point a great loss, um, Silas was a great gain, and it shows us once again that even the best Christians don't always, disagree, don't always agree, right? There can be disagreements within the body of Christ. This contention here, uh, it wasn't good, but in the providence of God and under the sovereignty of God, God is glorified, and uh, it multiplied the work of God, actually. So as we enter 
into chapter 16, as we did last time, we are introduced to a new servant of Christ, a new worker, and that is young Timothy, which we see right there um, in the beginning of the chapter. And as we recall, in order to allow the ministry to function without any unnecessary um, hiccups or setbacks, Timothy allows himself to be circumcised. Timothy's father was a Greek, his mother and his grandmother were Jewish. And in order to, to bridge both cultures, Paul obviously saw it as a great benefit to have this young lad circumcised um, in order to, to bridge a gap. Uh, between both cultures. And then in verse 5 of chapter 16, it says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. In verse 6, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into uh, uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So, in response to that call, Paul and his associates immediately board a ship to Troas, sailed across the Aegean Sea, and they land in the port city of Neapolis, the port of Philippi, located about... Uh, 10 miles or so inland, known today as northern Greece. Okay, now the rest of the chapter, as we proceed, the rest of the chapter highlights the stories of three individuals coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one is Lydia, who was an influential businesswoman. The second was a demon-possessed slave girl, who's unnamed. And the third is also another unnamed individual who happens to be a jailer, an unnamed town jailer. Okay, Luke is the author, may we not forget. And Luke was actually a a citizen of this city. And, And perhaps is the reason so much attention and time is given to it through his pen. Luke describes it as a leading city in the district of Macedonia. A leading city. Hey, he might have written that because he was biased, who knows. But I don't think it was really a leading city, but one of them for sure. Uh, back in verse 10, for the first time in Acts, we see that the first person plural pronoun, we. We. Okay, Luke, in other words, is now traveling with Paul. But the we will change to they at the end of verse 40, um, indicating that that Luke remained behind in Philippi when when Paul and his posse uh, went south. And then the we appears again in chapter 20, where where Paul returns to Philippi, chapter 20, verse 6. And then we stops again in chapter 21 and reappears in chapter 27, as Paul and his group head to Rome. And we'll see that about December or January. I figure that's how long it will take us to finish, probably January after the new year, to finish Acts. Now, Philippi, 
Um, at one time was a strategic site uh, for the Greek Empire. In, in 168 BC, the Romans conquered it. They conquered Macedonia. And then in 42 uh, BC, uh, Philippi was made a Roman colon- a colony. It was, a, in other words, a district um, of Rome, which meant the people there experienced the same rights and the same privileges of those of the city of Rome. So they were governed by their own senate. They had Roman laws. They used the Roman language. And there was a Roman uh, garrison stationed there in Philippi for security. Uh, There was a very uh, renowned medical school there. And and some historians believe that Luke attended uh, medical school here. Remember, he was a doctor um, right here in his homeland. And this this was also known, this, this town, this region was also known as the right of the law of, of Italy. It had, it had the right of the law of Italy, uh, providing its citizens with even more privileges, one of which is they didn't have to pay taxes. Hello, wouldn't that be great? They didn't have to pay taxes. So as a result, it became a great area for merchandising, and is very likely why we see Lydia, this very successful businesswoman, um, um, applying her trade here. Now, God has called Paul away from where Paul wanted to go. Okay? Paul was a driven man. He was a strong leader. And where he wanted to go and where he planned to go, God hindered that. The Spirit of Jesus hindered that. And he gives them that you know, extraordinary vision, the Macedonian call, right? And, 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 and what does he find when he gets there? Well, one thing he doesn't find, as is Paul's habit, every place he goes, the first place he would go preach is where? Synagogue. There's no synagogue here. His habit was to preach first in the synagogue. There is no synagogue and notice verse 12, we remained in this city some days, and some days, number of days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. Jews would typically go to, to a body of water for prayer and, and a, a body of moving water. Where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, to to form a synagogue anywhere that would take 10 men. Took 10 men to form a synagogue. There is no synagogue. They travel outside the the city towards this river, this place of prayer. And when he gets there, there's just a group of women praying. That's all. Not that that's all. Just women, but with the mind of Paul, I mean, that's all. That's all it was. There was no synagogue. And, you know, if we think of this just as human beings, perhaps in their minds they're starting, to, they're starting to wonder, you know, was this a good idea? Many times in ministry we have these grandiose ideas or ideals, amen, that if we do this or we go there, God's going to do this great magnificent work. And when our expectations aren't met, we start to scratch our chin and go, man, was this really God? Amen, have you ever been through that before? Amen, thank you. You know, did we take a wrong turn somewhere? Did we not hear the Lord correctly, right? 
I mean, this was an extraordinary vision. This is, this is a big deal. So typically, I think you would expect uh, a, a huge payoff, if you will. Huge results. Marvelous things. But the, here, here's a group of women praying by a river. That's what I mean by that's all. But the Lord is about to do something marvelous. And that's what we can't miss. This is something Paul couldn't plan for. This is something strong leaders can't plan for. Driven men. But God had purposed something for his glory that wasn't in the mind of Paul. And it benefits all. It benefits everybody in the narrative who, who, who is at this point doing the work of God. So here's a group of women praying near a body of moving water, praying near this, this river. And this group of women were being led by, by a businesswoman. And the text refers to her as a God-fearer. Notice you can be a God-fearer or a worshiper in this context of Yahweh and not be saved. Amen? Many people fear God. The one true God, they don't know him through his son. She comes to know him. She's a worshiper of God, the one true God of Israel. And then Paul speaks in verse 14. Um, he, he speaks the truth. And notice, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord, notice this is beautiful, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You can hear and not hear, amen? You can hear and not hear. But here we see what theologians refer to as the effectual call, amen? And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she, for, she prevailed upon us, Luke writes. So God speaks through his word. And what we see is an example of what God ordinarily does in the conversion of souls through the exposition of the scriptures. What else did Paul do but explain the text? Christ is unfolded. God, according to his sovereign spirit, opens the heart of this woman like he does everyone else. And if he doesn't, there's no hope. There's no hope. I was sitting back a couple days ago, just thankful that, I'm, that I believe. Right? Okay, and it's not because I'm brilliant, that's for sure. Amen to that. A gift to God that I believe the gospel. Man. And then, because of that great truth, every time I'm in my flesh, I feel even more miserable. Because of this great, amen? It's a great gift. Christians are always repenting, are we not? Even of our attitudes. So Christ is unfolded, and he opens this woman's heart. First, she's receptive to the word about Jesus. She receives the word about Jesus, and then she's baptized in the name of Jesus. And notice here, uh, her and her whole household were baptized. There aren't infants here. There aren't boys here. 
there aren't even little girls here. It's interesting, in verse 13, it says, We suppose there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women. That, that word is gune, which means a wife, which means this was a group of adult women who were praying, who heard the word and received the word and were baptized in this body of water. So as a result of her heart having been opened by God, right? She opens her heart to those who are in Jesus and of Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. And she now opens her heart to these missionaries and she prevails upon them, notice, to stay in their house. So the word of God goes out, they're transformed, they believe, Paul says you need to be baptized, they get baptized, and then she bids them come back and stay at our house. Now, perhaps Paul and his team were staying in an inn somewhere, and she says, no, I insist, you must stay at my house. We see a lot of hospitality in the book of Acts, do we not? Time and time again. So she opens her home, and what a wonderful and unexpected thing that must have been for Paul and his team here. Um, Confirming once again the call to Macedonia, the way in which God led them, hindering what they wanted to do, redirecting them in what he wants done. So here's some confirmation. Here's some encouragement. We see fruit of this call. We see hospitality to those given the call. So the the sun is shining, right, for a minute? The sun's shining by the river, amen? Amen. Everything's going well. But this is only calm before the storm in Acts, right? Time and time again. You see this divine great work of God, and then you see opposition to the gospel. A great work and opposition. Great work and opposition. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer. Okay, now, so they're in this place. They're there, obviously, for a good number of days, and they keep going back. So... As were we going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So over the course of the days, they returned to this place, and as they did, they run into this slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Divination comes from the word puthon, or pythian spirit. She had a pythian spirit. You're familiar with the word python. Same word for snake. And in this day, this was a, uh, um, and in this environment, this was a mythical snake or a dragon-like creature that uh, supposedly guarded the temple of the Greek god Apollo. So mythology, no doubt, had crept into Philippi some time ago. And this python had become the symbol for anyone who was demon-possessed. She had a Pythian spirit. And it was believed then that a demon-possessed person could tell the future, i.e. fortune-telling. Take note of that. For I would certainly hope no Christian will get their fortune read. Amen? If you do, you're just opening up this door right here. That's all you're doing. You're delving into the demonic. Now, So Luke writes that this girl 
was Puthon or had a Pythian spirit. And people in this area, man, we got to remember, they would have believed what she was saying, that the things that she said was true. She was owned by men. And she was owned by men to, to tell people's fortunes. And then they would make a fortune out of her fortune telling. That's it. That's what's going on. So for several days, the, the, she follows the apostles. She follows Paul and his compa- companions, his team. And she's uttering these words. Notice, these men are servants of the Most High God and have come to tell us the way of salvation. Have you ever pondered that? I mean, a couple of questions arise in our mind as you examine this picture. And the first is, why does an evil spirit in and through this woman utter the truth? Because that's true. Because indeed, they were servants of the Most High God. And indeed, they were proclaiming the true and only way of salvation. That's truth. That's word. But we're reminded that the demons in the Gospels also spoke truth every time they saw Jesus. Amen? Most certainly you are the son of the living God, the one who's come to destroy us. True? True word. The devil always speaks some truth. Always. That's why there's cults and religion. And as believers, we can see that religion, the one who stands at the front door of religion is Satan, masquerading as an angel of light. And his servants, therefore, masquerade as ministers of light. William Bates, Puritan writer, said this, quote, I think in a very meaningful and insightful way, that the devil will tell you a hundred things that are true in order that he might tell you the hundred and first thing that isn't true. And weave his way of cunning and evil into the machinations of your heart and soul. Machinations, scheming, crafty work. End quote. So Satan, in order to dissuade one from Christ... Uh, will actually tell some truth. Some truth. So, although this girl, using the title, right, the Most High God, which he is, that would have appealed to everyone. In in, In the midst of Greek mythology, think about it. The one true God, the Most High God, the God of gods. This would have appealed to them. And for a time, and for a time, provided some publicity for Paul and his team. It helped gather an audience for sure, amen? But after a few days, Paul loses his patience. He becomes irritated. Have you ever met someone who, who's like not in Christ but they're speaking truth and they got this snide little sneer on their face? Smirk? Oh yeah, here comes the minister of the gospel. He tells people about the love of Christ. 
you know, if you weren't a Christian, you'd like to slap him in the mouth. Because he's mocking God. Although elders aren't to be given to blows, amen? (laughs) Paul tolerates it for a while. For, for sev- several days, apparently, until verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Even Paul got annoyed. That's very encouraging. <laughs> he was irritated, no doubt, knowing Paul. He, he's troubled in spirit that, that such a young girl would be caught up in such a vice of Satan and evil men. So the combination of that and this irritant following them around, he's had enough. And, you know, he probably didn't know what to make of her at first. He's walking into town and she's saying, look, at these are servants of the Most High God telling us, you know, how to be saved. It's like, amen, sister. And then after a couple goes, after a couple days, I don't think you're a sister. You're the devil. (laughs) Verse 18, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. So we can presume, I think, uh, that this girl, having been delivered, became a believer. So here's Lydia. She becomes a believer by the river. And here we see more fruit, I believe, of the proclamation of the gospel. And you notice... A woman of high ranking, Lydia, successful, and then a woman from the streets are saved by the same gospel, the same truth, the same grace provided a prosperous businesswoman is the same grace needed to to save a, a, a young girl who's owned by evil men and used to make them money. So this shows us that sometimes, also, this is important, this account shows us that sometimes we're called to confront those who seem to be telling the truth. Did you get that? Who has more discernment than a mature Christian? Nobody. I I watch a lot of news commentators and very intelligent people, business, economics, uh, uh, political science. You're like, man, these people are really smart. Without Christ, you as you sit and listen to them have more wisdom than they'll ever know. So, The principle here is that when someone seems to be telling the truth, you know it's only partial truth. There's some responsibility to step in and to point it out. I think that shines through here. Now, they didn't particularly like what Paul had done to this slave girl or what God did through Paul's preaching to this slave girl because in exercising this demon... He also exercised their income. And there's actually a play on words in this text, and that's pretty much what that means. Exercising the demon exercised their income. No mo. Verse 19, but when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, they're disturbing our city, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, the crowd, notice this, then the crowd joined in attacking them, mob rule, right? And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So they're confronted by the city officials, laying against them the charge of of advocating an unapproved religion, if you will, and, you know, disturbing Pax Romana, you you know, peace of Rome, Roman peace. So, and then he says, these men are Jews. So you see this anti-Semitic spirit there. These men are Jews. You remember, there weren't enough Jews in this town to start a synagogue. Right? So to say someone was a Jew would immediately cast doubt as to their motives. So they're stirring up, they're whooping up the crowd here. And they did. And, verse 23, they had inflicted many blows upon them, threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Okay, here's an order to the jailer. Keep them safely. Keep them locked up. That's a big order. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, This, according to Paul's writing to the Corinthians, remember, is one of those three times that Paul had been beaten with rods. Three times, beaten with rods, this is one of them. Now, you might think that after such brutal treatment, Paul and Silas would be groaning from the physical pain. Amen? Amen? Maybe even discouraged. Okay, think about the Christian life. You're beaten down. You're, you're in a dark, damp place. So you become discouraged. Discouragement leads to disappointment. Disappointment with discouragement leads to depression of your plight, of your suffering, of your trial. But instead of whining here, instead of complaining, and instead of saying, God, kill them all. Wipe them out. They're found at midnight when usually, you ever hurt yourself? Surgery, you've been beaten with rods, uh, been in a good tussle on the street, uh, football, uh, hockey, uh, boxing. And when is your pain the worst? At midnight, when you're in bed. when pain would seem to be the worst, they're found praying and singing. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and and check this out, and the prisoners were listening to them. Listen to what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. Quote, any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there's not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God, not in the power of men 
end quote. Now, Spurgeon isn't talking totally, literally about singing. I think we get that. But how we react as Christians to the pain and miseries of life. Because it's easy to praise God when everything's going good, amen? Who, who doesn't praise God when everything's going good? Going well, smooth. Or when you're given the accolades of men. When people are slapping you on the back, telling how great you are, what a great Christian brother or sister you are, glory to God, we're so thankful for you. Praise God, amen? But when no one's singing your praises, and the road is not smooth and the sun is not shining, we have a tendency to go down and say what? Poor what? Poor me. So, the blinders are drawn in. I no longer see the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the glory of God, and that everything's for His glory. And the more that blinders come in, I see more of me, I see less of you, I see less of His glory. I see my hands, I see my arms, I can see my my torso right now, and I hunker down in a corner and I focus on me. Amen? That's what happens. So it's quite another thing to sing praises in the middle of the night when your feet are in the stocks, when you're in your dark, you're in a dark, damp, damp dungeon with a tattered back in pain from a beating for preaching the gospel. It's not naturally easy to sing then. We all know this. Amen? Regularly, I feel like quitting the ministry. Feel like. Right, brother? Right? Feel like. But you know, you can't. When the sun is covered by the gloomy gray skies... All your friends have deserted you, apparently, or perhaps they have. Woe is me. And any feeling in your body of pain is only intensified because stress adds to that pain. Anxiety, stress, it only inflames the pain. These guys are in true physical pain. They're praising God. And prayer and praise are powerful instruments in the hands of Almighty God. Are they not? And note, Luke records that even the rest of the prisoners were listening to them. If you go look up that word, it means to listen intently. Not just saying, oh, there's some dudes singing down the corridor. They're listening to what they're saying in the song. They're listening to what they're saying in the prayer. You know, the world watches how we as Christians respond to troubles in life. I mean, are we aware of that? I know friends in my own life that are, even some Christians, professing Christians, and certainly unbelievers, will notice how we, my wife or I or whoever, responded to some either tragedy or incident in our life. They, they actually mention it like months later, which means they were watching. 
listening. And here, they're listening intently to what they're singing and what they're saying. This is Paul who writes in Romans 5, we rejoice in what? Tribulations. We don't just tolerate them. As we grow in maturity by the grace of God, and who can rejoice in trouble and trial but by the grace of God? I be- Do you beg God for his grace every day? When I got up this morning, I didn't want to come preach. I'll be honest. I didn't want to come preach today. And I begged God for his mercy and his power. Because you're powerless to do this or anything that any of us do. We don't just tolerate it. We don't just grit our teeth or or, or address God with empty phrases. You know? Paul knew it was through tribulations that God draws his people closer to himself. We see it in scripture time and time again. So remember that. In the midst of your trouble and trial, God's only drawing you closer. It is a form of chastening, and not all chastening is because of disobedience, amen? It's just a refinement. And these trials and troubles serve also as proof to the, of those who are his. Because those who walk away when difficulty comes and go apostate, it shows, it proves they're what? They're not his. So Paul really understands that this period of tribulation and all the tribulation and trouble that he faced uh, was an indicator that, that God in his in extraordinary providence was working in doing something greater than what was before Paul. Which in this case was just trouble with a capital T. Okay, so here they are. They're locked up. They're singing. They're praising God. Verse 26. And suddenly... There was a great earthquake, providential earthquake. So that the foundation of the prisons were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and notice this, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. Not just Paul and Silas. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why why is that? Well, because under Roman law, uh, any guard who allowed his prisoners to escape would undergo their punishment. And obviously, there were some cats here on death row. So he doesn't want to face their sword. He'll just fall on his. Paul then cries out, no, stop. Don't do it. Verse 28, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's no more important question than that in life, amen? What must I do to be saved? Have you ever had anybody do that to you? I, I, was, I don't know that I have. Like in, in a moment of despair like that. What must I do to be saved? And they said, notice what they didn't say. Look at this law, the law of God. Go do your best. 
to uphold it. And perhaps, if you do your best, God will accept you. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus, right? The one who fulfilled the law. And you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And notice the result. He bathes their wounds and he shows them kindness. He's baptized. And all those who notice here, he spoke the word and they heard the word and then they're all baptized. Then in verse 35. But when it was day, the the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? I love this, man. No, oh no, 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 Paul says. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. Now, apparently, the city officials, thinking that they had done their job, send the police, okay, we beat these guys good, go ahead and let these guys go. Paul says, hold on a minute. You just beat us, arrested us, jailed us without a trial, and that's against the law to do to anyone who's a Roman citizen. You couldn't be beaten or imprisoned without a trial if you were a Roman citizen. Remember Paul? He didn't buy his citizenship. He boasts in the fact that he was born a Roman citizen. So te- Paul takes pride in his citizenship. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Are you, I'm, I'm proud I'm American. And I hope you are. I don't care what your politics are. You should be happy to live here. And if you're not, as I've said before, travel abroad and you will come back happy, kissing the ground when you get to the airport. <laughs> so he makes use of his rights. And also this, he holds the leaders of this community responsible. This is a principle that we also should follow and not be afraid to follow. So anyway, we're out of time, but look at this. Where Paul wanted to go, God redirects an extraordinary vision. He says, you're not going to go that way, you're going to go this way. And through it, by way proclamation of the gospel, Lydia is saved, a slave girl, a prison guard. They all hear the same truth and the only truth that saves. 
But in the midst of that proclamation, in the midst of that journey, there's trouble, trial. And in the midst of it all, the one who provides the gospel and the one who sustains you in the gospel is the same one who in his providence and sovereignty provides the trouble. All for his glory. And the good of his people and purpose. So we by faith must do the same. Amen? So there's chapter 16. Next week we'll look at chapter 17 verses 1 through 15. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for this account. And all these accounts and acts. The acts of the apostles and how you sovereignly Um, charged them, led them, directed them, empowered them, and sustained them through it all so that we can sit this side uh, of 2,000 years and rejoice in your finished work work and and the same word that is proclaimed as the same word that saves sinners by grace, ourselves included. For this we thank you. We pray that we will uh, continue to persevere by way of your grace and mercy Strengthen us in our weaknesses, Lord, and may that be sufficient, your grace. May we understand, like Paul, that your grace is sufficient to sustain us and enable us for your glory and the good and furtherance of the gospel through your church, the church of, your Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.